out on a wonderfully happy group today. Almost everyone is smiling. And those that aren't smiling are probably asleep. It's good to have you all here. I'm glad that you have made the effort not only to be here, but to join us online. We are pleased and hope that this will be a blessing to you as we look into the Word of God. And the word today is cost. Did you know that they have plans now when you buy a car that it will take you seven years to pay for it? Seven years. That's quite a cost. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that's the reality of the world that we live in. Things have gotten so expensive. Houses now have 40-year mortgages. I'm going to date myself just a little bit and tell you about my parents and what would happen when they would get these envelopes in the mail and they would send you a credit card. Unbelievable. They could not believe that people had this plastic and that you could buy things on credit. Every time it came, it went straight into the garbage. They could not imagine. That's not the life that they lived. They just couldn't imagine it. But that is the life that we perhaps live. There are some who live and say, if I can't pay cash for this car that I'm going to buy, I'm not going to buy it. And I admire those people. That they don't buy anything unless they can slap that money down on the barrel head and pay for it right there. It's a good way. We can't all live that way. Everything has a price. Everything has a cost, as it were. Whatever we want in this life, we think, well, cost, we're talking in terms of, of money. But it goes much further than that when we think of things that we want in our life. There's a cost. If you want to achieve something in life, there's a, there's a price you must pay. And not to think in terms of cash, but think in terms of effort. Think in terms of time. Think of the sacrifices you will have to make to achieve that. That is a cost. Now, we may think that 40 years might be longer than we're willing to make a mortgage on our house, or seven years longer than we're willing to pay for a cost on it, but it's an agreement that we make. And in our minds, when we are going to achieve something, we make an agreement with ourselves that I am willing to pay that cost in order to achieve it because it's worth it to me. There's a cost. There's a sacrifice that we have to make. And once we have achieved that, we look back and think, I paid a price. I paid the cost of something that I have achieved. That may sound arrogant, but it is, in reality, what we do. For those who have graduated from high school, college, they have a master's degree, they have a PhD, they have achieved anything in life. They've paid that cost, and when they have paid the cost, not because it was handed to them, they grasped that what was worth it. There is something about getting things for free, that leaves us sometimes with the idea that, yeah, I got it for nothing. It didn't cost me anything. And we don't value it as much. Have you found that to be true? Look at our society at things that we give away for free. 
and see the value that people put on it. Just observe. You make that observation. The cost of Christianity is the title of today's sermon. If you have a bulletin, there is an outline that you can follow along and see just how closely I come to that. The cost of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the greatest cost of Christianity was the fact that God was willing to give his son on the cross. I cannot imagine that cost. We speak in terms in our own country, perhaps we can grasp it on a level, when we send young men and women to war and they lay their lives on the altar of freedom, having given their life. The true cost of God's love was that he was willing to give his son. Last week in our Sunday morning class, we talked about Isaac being a type of Christ. And in the end, when, when Isaac was ready to be sacrificed, and the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from giving his son. Chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 12. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And to those who are Hebrews and perhaps to those who are uh, of the Jewish faith may not understand the, the import of what was talked about there. But we grasp it as Christians because... John 3.16 tells us that God was not willing to withhold his only son from us. And that was the cost. That was the ultimate cost. Romans 5.8, as was read, and I appreciate Taylor reading those verses for us. I appreciate the gentlemen that are willing to get up and read for us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I like the way that Paul puts it in the book of Romans when he says that well, I, I probably would be willing to die for, for all of you here. But please don't ask me just yet. Because we'd be willing to give our lives for those whom we love. But God gave his son while we were still sinners. And read about the angry mob when Jesus was on trial. Who could not see past their own desires. When they said, crucify him, crucify him. But God said, I'm still willing to give my son. While we were still sinners. And there was also the cost of Christ himself. One of my favorite passages, and I know I tell you this all the time, but one of my top 10,000 passages in the Bible <laughs> comes from Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians chapter 2 is, is one of those when sometimes when I read it, to be quite honest with you, takes my breath away when I read it in its full import. 
Paul is trying to get across to those in Philippi. And remember, Paul is writing from his timeshare on the Aegean Sea. There on the... No, he isn't. He's writing from prison. It's one of his prison epistles. And he tells us of what Christ gave up for you and I. Beginning in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, it was the cost of the father to give his son, but it was the cost of the son who said, I'm going to give all of this up. Everything. I don't know what heaven looks like. We've gotten glimpses that can only be described in human terms from books like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel. And again, when Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, of things of which it's not even lawful for man to speak. That's how wondrous this is. And going ahead to the book of Revelation and the descriptions, and we can't imagine what it is. And Christ gave that up for the likes of me. Me, of all people. I'll give it all up for you. I not only give up heaven, but I'm going to come down and be like you. And not only will I be like you, I'm going to serve you as a servant. And not only am I going to serve you as a servant, but I'm going to endure the punishment. And not only am I going to endure the punishment, I'm going to endure the cross for you. That's quite a cost. Any volunteers to take on the weight of the sins of the world. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. had it all, and gave it up for us. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, beginning in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And dropping down to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, he went through with it, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Tim, you said it as you led one of the songs, that he knew what awaited him. There was no surprises. He knew what awaited him. Imagine that weight on his shoulders in the garden where he went and prayed. The disciples couldn't comprehend it. As he came back to them, couldn't you sit and pray for one hour? But they couldn't, because they didn't realize it, but Jesus did. He even tells them in Mark chapter 9, and verse 12, Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He knew it. He knew the shame 
He knew the death that he had to endure. And he kept telling the disciples all along the way, this is what's going to happen. And Peter said, no, no, this isn't going to happen. No way. I'm not sure how that translates in Greek, but he said, it's it's not going to happen. Everybody else will leave you and deny you, but not me. I won't. And we know what Christ told him. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows this very evening. He would be left alone. Isaiah chapter 53, a beautiful chapter that describes the suffering that was going to come upon the Messiah. Who has believed our report? Who would believe this that is going to happen? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That was the cost. That was the price that the Messiah had to pay for you and I. And if that were the end of the story, you and I might say, what a cost was paid. And that 40-year mortgage seems like a pretty easy deal, doesn't it? And 72 months for a car, not a bad deal. But there is a cost of being a Christian. And this is how I'm going to sell it to you. Everything is going to be a bed of roses. And those glasses you have, throw them away because I'm going to give you rose-tinted ones. You'll never have problems again. Everything and everyone will always be on your side. Have I sold this to you? Do I sound like a salesperson? It wouldn't be fair because when the reality comes, you'll say, I recognize that sales technique. It's called bait and switch. You know it. They sell you on all of the positives. They don't tell you that there's a cost to it. You see, there is a cost to being a Christian. And you deserve to know what the cost is. Luke chapter 14 and verse 33. 
Jesus tells us, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The cost, you must be willing to give up everything that you have in order to be a Christian. And right now, you're telling me, where do I sign on the dotted line? Wow, that sounds like a good deal. Oh, but wait, there's more. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. It was the passage in which Jesus tells his disciples that he is beginning to have to go to suffer. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? As if the first item was not enough, forsaking all, he says that you must deny yourself. I really have you, but there's a lot more to this. There's a lot more to this cost. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You must live a life of sacrifice. Wow, you're thinking. Tell me more. I can hardly wait to see what I have to give up in this life. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, about the work that we do. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Those things that you really want to do in life, he says, you must abound in the work of the Lord. That must be first in your life. First, abounding in the work of the Lord. And time doesn't permit to tell about all the work of the Lord. We'll save that for another time. But abounding in the work of the Lord is your priority now. Paul writes to Timothy. And sometimes we, we get the impression that that teaching aspect falls right here, but doesn't go much beyond it. Paul writes to Timothy, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, we get the impression it's only the job of a few, a select few to teach. And when we believe that, then we have lost the aspect. We have lost the concept of the Great Commission. Yes, there are some who have been endowed with the ability to teach who stand behind these podiums. But it has not excluded all of us 
from teaching in our own way. Of being able to tell people about the hope that you have within you. As you walk down the street, as you meet those people who are your friends, wherever you go, and someone says, why are you so happy? What is this hope that you have when this world is in turmoil? And you say, I don't know, just the way I feel. No, you say, my hope is not in this world. My hope is in heaven above. That is my citizenship. But Paul also writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, all. All. That's the Greek word pas. And when it says all, it means all. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I really have you now. You really want this, don't you? You really want it because you're going to suffer. But let me give you the last one. And in a few moments, the lesson will be yours. And it comes in what we tend to think of as the beginning of Christ's teaching. In what many have described as the greatest sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus tells those who are listening, and he tells you and I in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Everything that the world worries about, our clothes, the roof over our head, the food that we eat, the water we drink, everything. He says, if you put the kingdom of God first, all these will be added to you. You don't have to worry about those. Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. We live in today. And so as we back up and, and look at each of those, and I spoke a little bit tongue-in-cheek, didn't I? And I said, oh, You'd be willing to sign up based on all of these things about forsaking everything and denying myself. It doesn't appeal to you, does it? But even if we ended at Matthew 6.33 when it says, and all these things will be added to you if we seek the kingdom of God, but there is more. What is the promise that waits us? Paul writes, if in this world is what we have hope in, we're of all people most miserable. But this world is not all that we have hope in. Our hope is in heaven above because of the cost that was paid for us. The cost of God giving his only begotten son and the son who said, I will go down there and endure whatever I have to endure for the souls of mankind. I'll do it. I'll pay the cost and what do they get out of it? What does Paul write about what we shall have? We shall be heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And heaven above, eternal life is what we will get. It's a small cost, isn't it? 
for you and I to say, I will put the kingdom of God first, not to inherit this world, but to inherit eternal life where you and I shall spend eternity, eternity in heaven above. We ask, weigh those out. Weigh them out and see if that cost is too great for you and I. Was the cost too great that God gave in Christ? It seems like a pretty extreme measure. But it was our souls at stake. And they paid the price for it. And the price that we shall pay initially is only obedience. You see, rich and poor, man and woman, young and old, no matter what nation you come from, what race, no matter who you are, no matter what sins that you have committed, you have this for free. And all you have to do is obey God. Believe that Jesus Christ came to this world and died for our sins because we cannot pay that price for ourselves. And be willing to declare that Jesus will be Lord and Master and King of your life and repent to turn from the way we used to live and walk in newness of life and being buried in Christ in baptism. In Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. In that obedience, being raised in newness of life, we are now ready to begin to pay that cost. But the rewards are far greater than anything we can imagine. Whatever your need is, we stand ready to help in any way we can. Together we stand and sing.